0: Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, September 8th, 2019, and this is show number 748. Well, before we dig in, I want to make sure to tell you that Steve and I will be hanging out in the Podfeet live chat room during the Apple announcement at 10 a.m. Pacific time on Tuesday, the 10th of September. If you'd like to join us, just go over to podfeet.com slash chat, and we really hope to see you in there or actually see you typing in there. Remember, this isn't me broadcasting and yapping over the whole thing. It's all of us on the same level. We're just going to be texting and watching and mostly writing, hey, is the feed stop for you? All right. In this week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond, we have an amazing new guest named Bart Bouchards, who comes in to talk to us about how he arranges his podcast listening, how he categorizes them, and then what kind of shows he likes. Bart listens to around six hours of podcasts per day, so this is quite a long list. He purposely didn't include any of the usual suspects that he's talked about often before. That means you are bound to learn about some shows that you've never heard of and might enjoy. There are tons of links to every show in the show notes. You can listen to this episode in the Chit Chat Across the Pond light feed, the full Chit Chat Across the Pond feed, or as always, you can listen over at podfeet.com. Last week, I forgot to tell you that I was on the SMR podcast with Rob Dunwood. Chris and Rod were both out, but Rob and I had a ton of fun. We had a total, just a great geek time. You see, he's been a Windows guy most of his life, and he's been contemplating getting his first Mac, and he wanted my advice. Now, he posted in their Facebook group that uh, he might need an MRI because he's have uh, what's happened to him that he's even considering it but his point in looking at Macs was that he could never justify the high cost of a Mac compared to an equivalent PC. But since he's looking at high-end computers this time, the PCs he's considering are only a smidge less expensive than the equivalent Mac. We talk a bunch about about a bunch of other geek stuff too. Check it out at smrpodcast.com and it's episode number 424 called Kicking It with Allison Sheridan. This week, I got to be on the Daily Tech News show with Tom Merritt and Sarah Lane. I was really excited to be on again because I'd had to decline a bunch of times in a row because of all of our pesky vacations. I know, Wine, whine, wine. Well, anyway, the main subject was near and dear to my heart. Tom wanted me to talk about how long it takes to charge an electric vehicle. You'll remember I wrote an article explaining in detail uh, all of the variables that have to be considered in answering that question. It was called Tesla Tech, How Long Does It Take to Charge? On Fridays, a gentleman named Len Peralta comes on, and while we talk, he draws the main topic. I know that sounds crazy, but it's kind of a cool angle. The drawing he made was near and dear to my heart as well. It's a Tesla logo partially filled with color that's plugged into a wall outlet. Get it? Anyway, the really fun part was that he added our dog Tesla to the drawing. Turns out you can buy all of Len's artwork over at LenPeraltaStore.com. You can get digital downloads or you can get uh, actual prints. I got the digital download, but I mentioned to get the print too. Might need that to add that to the wall behind me here when I'm doing the recordings. Anyway, you can check out DTNS. At is the tank half empty or half full? And that's DTNS episode 3611. But anyway, of course, there's a link in the show notes. Now, I can't talk about DTNS without talking about the continuing problems of slowdown on my Mac while streaming video. Last week, I went into excruciating detail about all of the experiments Steve and I have gone through with my 2016 MacBook Pro because I can no longer stream video with my my processor dropping down to nothing. As soon as I start streaming, my processor slows down from a nominal 2.6 gigahertz to as low as 1 gigahertz, which makes my Mac nearly unusable. The conclusion of our experiments last week was that it must be some interaction between the failing battery and the CPU and GPU since it affects the graphics card. Last Sunday's live show was all done from my 2013 MacBook Pro, and it worked like a champ. I had zero problems with that Mac. Now, earlier I had called Apple to report the failing battery and the key doubling problem just to get case numbers started in case I did the kind of stupid thing I usually do, which is procrastinate and then not take my Mac in until after AppleCare runs out in November. Now it was time to actually make a Genius Bar appointment for my 2016 MacBook Pro. I went online, selected the closest Apple store to my house and was presented with a schedule that showed I could get an appointment never. I'm not kidding. Seriously. It said, this location has no available appointments. Well, isn't that convenient? I uh, had to think about uh, Bart and Alistair both complaining that they didn't have Apple stores. Well, I essentially don't have one. The Apple showcase is near and near here, that's for sure. Well, in the past, I've had success by calling AppleCare and asking them to get, make an appointment for me. It turns out they can often see further into the future than we can. When I called, though, the first person I talked to, her name was Dior, and uh, I have to say she was so annoying she made Warren, that guy who annoyed me about my iPhone case, look positively competent and pleasant. Now, I'm not going to do a big, long rant about Dior and everything. I couldn't stand about her, but let's leave it that after 14 minutes of her annoying me, I asked to speak to her supervisor, and I got Amy, who was delightful. Now, Amy wasn't able to get me an earlier appointment, but instead, she simply shipped a box to my house so I can send it into Apple. I realized that since I have a backup Mac, waiting one to two days for the box, and it only took one, and shipping it to them was the same time I'd be away from the Mac as if I took it to the Apple store, and I didn't have to drive to the store that actually had appointments, which is about 40 minutes away in annoying LA traffic, and I didn't have to go pick it up, so having them send me a box made way more sense. All right, so fast forward to my appearance on the Daily Tech News show on Friday that I was telling you about. Right as we started to broadcast live, my video and audio went in the pooper. Now remember, I'm on my 2013 MacBook Pro. I'm not on the 2016. I couldn't believe it. I launched the Intel Power Gadget, and wouldn't you know, my processor had dumped down to 1 gigahertz. I killed my video stream almost immediately, and that seemed to help a little bit, but my audio was still doing that cyborg thing. I hung up on the Google Hangout that we use and reconnected without video, and my audio came back great for a while, and then it would go bad again. Throughout the entire episode, I was hanging up and reconnecting repeatedly. Now, I should go back and uh, explain just about everything that could go wrong that day for DTNS did go wrong, but it was interesting because being professionals, everybody adapted, we uh, Sarah's microphone was for some reason unrecognized by Discord, their chat software. So during show preparation, where we talk in audio there, she had to use the mic from her Logitech camera. Then Roger Chang's power went out 15 minutes before we went live. Now, Roger having power matters because he's the producer of the show and he does all of the video streaming. So without power at his house, there would be no live show at all. Like I said, being professionals, Tom jumped in and tried to start setting up the live stream from his side, and then he called in Anthony Lemos, their backup producer, who dropped everything and came in and started the stream. Crisis averted. Now, with me hanging up and coming back in constantly, that created problems for reading the articles. They keep a Google sheet going with all of the articles and who was supposed to be reading them. While I was gone, Tom quickly marked the articles I was supposed to read, changing them from saying AS next to them to saying AS slash SL. So when I jumped back in, I could tell which ones I could read and Sarah would read if I was gone. I have to give myself some chops here too. Jumping in and out reminded me of my childhood self, jumping into a rotating jump rope held by two other girls. I had to listen quickly as I came back in and time my my comments perfectly so it appeared to the audience that I had never left and I would be in a rhythm that wouldn't shock Tom and Sarah. Now on the Tesla charging stuff, Tom had read my article and I had also summarized the main points that go into answering the question of how long does it take to charge. I had put those uh, little notes into the Google Sheet. That meant when I disappeared each time, Tom could pick up the thread and kind of talk to each point himself until I came back. I got to say, it was not a perfect show from the audience perspective, but I defy another group of people to adapt as quickly as we all did under the circumstances. I was glad that Tom listens to my show so he knew what I was doing and uh, he was doing and he knew that I was doing everything humanly possible to fix this darn problem. It wasn't that I was just too stupid to stream video and audio correctly. All right. Now, let's get serious. What the heck is going on with my video streaming problems? I have now swapped out the entire darn computer. How could this still be happening? Tom said he thinks it's my house causing the problem and the only way to test it is to take everything to someone else's house. Well, as I said earlier, my 2013 MacBook Pro was working like a champ streaming video during the live show on Sunday. So what changed? Steve and I did another dozen or so experiments yesterday, down to the point where we were analyzing my UPS to see if moving power for the dock, monitor, and Mac off of it could fix the problem. And then I thought, you know, I haven't actually thought about all of the software. Maybe it's Audio Hijack. That's an app that's been involved in every plot. With all of the Google Hangout, Discord, and Hindenburg nonsense going on, I tried toggling Audio Hijack on and off. Every time I turned it on, the processor would dump down in speed. Every time I turned it off, the processor would recover. Had I finally found the root cause? But then the next time I toggled it, the processor did not change speed. I swear, if Steve had not experienced this firsthand, I do not think he would have ever believed me that I was doing controlled experiments changing one thing at a time because for the life of us, we still could not find a pattern. And then I had a thought. On Sunday's show, where I'd used the older 2013 MacBook Pro, I had also put in my old 27 inch Apple Cinema display. I did this because it has Mini DisplayPort, which the 2013 Mac also supports. If I wanted to use it to drive my, the 2013 MacBook Pro to drive my 5K display, I would need the USB C to Mini DisplayPort adapter that is $50 from Apple and only Apple makes it. That didn't seem worth the price for a week. So on the, old, on the live show, I was using the 2013 MacBook Pro with the old 27-inch Apple Cinema display. But then on Thursday, my friend Pat came over for dinner and she loaned me her adapter, the one that would allow me to drive the 5K display. We plugged in the LG 5K display and it worked great. Now, I gotta tell you, I wouldn't have been so adamant about using the 5K display, but with my new bionic eyes after having cataract surgery, the lower resolution of the Apple Cinema display drives me nuts. So, one single thing had been changed between doing a successful live show with the old Mac and the disaster on Tom's show with the old Mac, and that was the 5K LG display. So could it be the display is somehow causing my newer Mac to slow down and my older Mac to slow down? Now, I thought a good experiment would be to plug my newer Mac into the old Apple Cinema display, But my newer Mac won't recognize the DisplayPort signal coming from the old Mac, uh, the old uh, monitor. And, you know, it turns out in 2018, I wrote an article entitled Just Because You Can Plug It In Doesn't Mean It Will Work. On that very page is a graphic showing that what I'm trying to do right now will not work. I really should pay attention to what I write and what I say. Anyway, Steve's 27-inch Apple display is a bit newer than the one I've been working with, and it supports Thunderbolt. We were able to get my newer MacBook Pro to drive this display. That means we finally have a control group to see if it's the Mac or the 27-inch 5K display from LG. I launched all of the software that normally will bring my Mac to its knees while plugged into Steve's 27-inch Apple display, and the processor did not drop like a stone. And in fact, that beautiful turbo boost even kicked right in. So I'm feeling about 67.3% confident that I have finally found the culprit. But I have to say I'm sad about the answer. Instead of my Mac being the problem, which is under Apple Care and on its way to Apple, or maybe a piece of software with a responsive developer who could help me fix it, it is the $1,200 LG 27-inch 5K display. From what I've been able to find online, LG is pretty unresponsive to requests for help, so that's swell. I haven't asked them uh, asked them yet for any help, and uh, they do have an app that I downloaded that allowed me to reset the uh, LG to its factory settings. And in some preliminary tests, nothing went wrong when I was connected to it with my newer MacBook Pro. But I don't believe that because it always changes. So we'll see. We'll keep doing uh, looking at it, and you know, if I could just just run one more experiment, I'm sure I'll be able to figure it out. Dave Hamilton of the Mac Geek Gab has been going on and on and on about how cool clipboard managers are, and when I was at Macstock, I cornered him to see if I could get him to show me why they were all that in the bag of chips. I wrote an article about how we used the built-in clipboard manager in Keyboard Maestro to solve a problem for me, and how I begrudgingly agreed clipboard managers might have some value. Dave talked about our conversation on his show on the Mac Geek Gab, and Larry Lush was listening. Larry is, or at least was at one time, a listener to the NosillaCast as far back as 2010. Anyway, Larry wrote to me and explained that he had tried every clipboard manager and that the very best of them was called copy and paste from appreware.com. Since Larry had never lied to me before and he did say he tried them all, I took it on faith that he knew what he was talking about and I bought copy and paste from the Mac App Store for $15. I'll give you a spoiler right here. Larry was right. Copy and paste is an awesome app. It's so awesome that I just finished a video tutorial for Screencast Online all about it. Now, usually I have to use a piece of software for a very long time before I'm comfortable enough with it to teach it. But with copy and paste, it's so intuitive and so well written that I jumped right in. Now, let's back up a little bit and talk about a few problems to be solved. Have you ever had to copy an address from Apple Contacts into a web form? You have to copy the first name, command tab over to the browser, hit paste, command tab back, copy last name, flip back, paste, flip back, copy the street address, flip back, paste, and on and on and on, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's really tedious, and we've all lived through that. With a Clipboard Manager, you can execute all of the copy commands one after another, just go copy, 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 and then just one flip to the browser and then paste each item one by one. With copy and paste, the developer gives you tons of options on how to paste, so you can tailor it and use it the way you like to use it. One thing I wanted in testing Keyboard Maestro, for example, was to be able to use the numbers next to the clippings to choose what to paste, but that was not an option in Keyboard Maestro. In copy and paste, you can use the numbers next to them to paste. But hey, maybe you don't want to use the numbers. Maybe you like to use arrow keys to move up and down and then hit enter to paste them. You can do that too with copy and paste. Maybe you'd rather drag and drop from copy and paste to the window in question. You can do that too. Now, people often sing the virtues of a clipboard manager by including the ability to save lists of frequently used things. This was one of the reasons I didn't think I needed a clipboard manager because I was convinced I didn't need to save anything I'd copied. That's dumb. But then when I was making the video for Don, I thought of something I did want to save. I've always wanted to be one of the cool kids who uses special characters while typing, like, you know, the Apple logo or the command symbol, but I can never remember the keystrokes for them and I can never seem to find them in the Character Viewer app. In copy and paste, I created a special list called Special Characters and I put in all of the fun ones. And now I can paste them in at any time into any text without having to remember short codes or any other method to find them. Now, you know, I'm a huge fan of Text Expander. I can't remember people's names that I've known for decades, but for some reason I can remember probably more than a hundred text expander abbreviations. I think it's because I create them myself, and when I create them, I simply put the very thing that pops into my little pea brain, which makes it more likely it will pop into my little pea brain when I need it. Because I can remember these little abbreviations like T E semicolon for Text Expander, the app increases my productivity immensely. But I gotta say, I talk to a lot of people who say they simply can't remember the abbreviations. If you're one of these people, maybe using copy and paste could get you some of the same functionality of Text Expander without having to remember keystrokes. You could create a list for those things you need to type all the time, and then use the menu bar icon to bring up copy and paste's window, or remember just one shortcut to open copy and paste. Then use the arrow keys or the number right next to the thing you wanna type, and hit enter, and you've got exactly what you need, and you didn't have to retype it all the time. Now, I know this isn't replicating all of the things that Text Expander can do, just the simplest things, but for those who can't get into Text Expander, this might still be a great alternative for you. Now, I've been saying text, but copy and paste also captures images. I take a lot of screenshots when I'm working, and I have to save them in order to use them anywhere. As I've been diagnosing my video streaming problem, I've been taking a ton of screenshots of the Intel Power Gadget. I created a list in copy and paste for those shots, and using the little star with a plus next to it, I was able to get all of the screenshots to dump into one list, not cluttering up everything else. Now, in copy and paste, you can name your screenshots, links, or text, so I can even note what I was doing in my diagnostic efforts when I took a particular screenshot. Now, another reason I'm so sold on copy and paste is that you can tailor even more stuff just to the way you like to work. I mentioned up front about the three different ways to paste clippings, but there's so much more you can tailor. You can have the window pop up right next to your cursor, or you can have it in a fixed location. You can change the theme from daylight, midnight, dusk to midnight. You can choose to have the numbers for selecting clippings start, start at one like a muggle, or zero like a nerd programmer. Come on, that's a great tip of the hat right there to the nerds. If you're whimsical, you can have cute little sounds play when you copy and paste, or if you're less flamboyant, it can be silent. Are you a control freak? You can sort your clippings manually. This makes sense on a saved list for sure, but on the main list, maybe sorting by last copied makes more sense. You can do that too. How about in a saved list sorting by the thing you m- paste most often? Yep, you can do that too in copy and paste. If you'd like to search, uh, like to use search to find your clippings, you can do that, and you can even have it default to start in the search field. But if you're a hit the number and run person, you can turn that feature off. Maybe you can actually can remember keystrokes. You can assign local keystrokes to specific clippings in copy and paste. For example, I assigned the letter A to the Apple logo, and now I invoke copy and paste. I hit A, and I've got my little logo. A is for Apple. Get it? (laughs) Anyway, you can also assign global shortcuts. These allow you to paste something from copy and paste without ever invoking the app at all. I don't know if I'll use that because I'm a text expander fanatic, so I would have that, that ability there, but maybe this is something that would work for you. Copy and paste allows you to do tons of text transformations. At the very simplest, there's a T at the bottom of the window that, once enabled, will allow you to paste your clippings as plain text. I keep that on by default because it's really pretty rare that I want to copy something and drag along all the font stuff someone else chose for that text. but but plain text transformations is just the beginning. Hold your hand up if you have ever accidentally typed a bunch of text and then realized you had caps lock on. Okay, I see everybody's hand up. With copy and paste, simply copy the text and in the transform section, which is under the three little vertical dots at the bottom, check the box for make lower case and then click the clipping you just copied and it will transform your shouting back to an indoor voice. It took me way longer to describe that than it does to execute. Another good one for the nerds is strip all white spaces. In Finder, I like to give my file names human-readable names with spaces in between the words. But if you put an image on the web, every space in the name gets converted to the character's ampersand two zero, so the name looks really stupid online. With strip all white spaces selected, I can copy and paste the name, and boom, I've got a name any command line nerd would appreciate. Now I'm not going to go through all of them, but you can do title case, remove empty lines, you can prepend or append text, and the, the last two in the list I've used a bunch already. You can copy a bunch of text and then paste that text as a rich text format file. It works great into the finder or as an attachment in an email, or even an attachment inside Apple Notes. The final transformation allows you to paste images as different file types. This is super handy for screenshots. Let's say you want to produce a good bug report to a software developer. You can take a series of screenshots one after another without interrupting your workflow. When you're done, you go to paste, and then you can paste them one after another in mail. But what if you want to format how they're pasted, being specific to use, say, PNG instead of JPEG for some reason, or if for some reason you wanted to use a bitmap format? You could do that. In Copy and Paste, under Transformations, you can set the format you want for pasted images. Also, just like with pasted text as files, you can paste right into the finder in the various formats as well. I've done that a bunch of times. Copy and paste is even more ways for you to find the clippings you need. By default, copy and paste shows you every clipping you've ever made from all applications. But there's a pull-down that lets you filter down to specific applications. You can also filter by what type of clipping it was. Was it text, an image, a link, or files and folders? guess it buried the lead there a little bit. When you copy a file or a folder in the finder, it actually goes into copy and paste too. Now at this point, you might be worried that copy and paste is going to get filled with old glop pretty quickly. In Preferences, you can control how many unstarred clippings the app will keep. The default is 1,000, but you could make that any number you like. You can also choose to have unstarred clippings deleted every time you quit the app. An unstarred clipping is any clipping that's, uh, or a starred clipping, I should say, is any clipping that's in a list you've created. I like that you can let them pile up if you're of the hoarder persuasion, but have it clean up after itself if you like things tidy. It's always up to the way you want to work with copy and paste. One of the critical features I want to make sure you don't miss about copy and paste is that you can blacklist specific apps. I say this is critical because if you don't blacklist your password manager, any password you copy will show up in plain text in your clipboard manager. Another app I blacklisted was Text Expander because it actually acts on the system clipboard, so anything expanded ends up inside copy and paste. That one's not for security reasons, but more of the keeping it tidy reasons. Copy and paste, as I said, is $15, and it has one in app purchase which you may or may not need. If you cough up the grand sum of five whole dollars, you get two extra things. You get the ability to export and import lists, and you get iCloud sync of your clippings and settings between computers. As I said, there's a lot of preferences and tweaks you can make to copy and paste to make it just the way you like it, so if you have multiple Macs, you will definitely want to get that iCloud sync feature. I exported all of my special characters list, and I put a link in the show notes in case anyone wants to import it into their version of copy and paste. Oh, and I named the file with a space in it, But I fixed that using copy and paste before uploading so the URL wouldn't look dumb. The bottom line is that with Larry's recommendation, I am now a firm believer in clipboard managers, and more specifically, copy and paste. The developer, Chris, was incredibly responsive to me while I was making the video for Don, and I did not find one single bug in this application. I'm not kidding. I can only say that about one other app, and that was iThoughts from ToketaWare. No bugs. The app is pretty, it's intuitive, and it has tool tips that really help you learn what every single menu option does, so you don't have to listen to me. If you're sold on the idea, but, you know, you think, my needs are more modest than what Allison described, Chris from Appy- Appryware does have a free app called PasteQ, of course there's a link in the show notes, and PasteQ will give you last-in-first-out copying and pasting. It might give you a wee bit of an idea of what you can do without having to pay for copy and paste but I bet you'll end up buying copy and paste after you play with it. Anyway, I can't say enough good things about copy and paste. And of course, I will let you know when the video is posted over on Screencasts Online. Well, let's take a really quick pledge break here, as Frank would call it. If you get value out of the content we create here at the PodFeed Podcast, it would be really swell if you gave some value back by contributing a recurring pledge through Patreon at podfeed.com slash Patreon, or through a one-time PayPal pledge over at podfeed.com slash PayPal. It's a lot of P's in all those sentences. Don't forget, you can always use the Amazon affiliate links to help support the show as well. We thank you for your support and now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. What's that time of the week again. It's time for security bits with Bart. Booth shots, and we have some really, really interesting stuff on the list today. Bart,
1: yeah, it's 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 been a busy like. It's supposed to be the silly season. Like <laughs> this is the time of year when everyone in the news media jokes about the fact that nothing happens. Someone <laughs> forgot to send a memo to the news. <laughs>
0: so. it, it is a case of where I'm glad we had some time between. The biggest kerfuffle and now to to have new information, what's going to be our, our first
1: story there, right? Yeah, I'm slightly cranky because most of the developments happened like the day after I recorded Let's Talk Apple. Oh, so, no. Yeah, so I was all, you know, ooh, happy, great. This story has had time to settle out. I don't have to go into it blind because it had been quite a few days And even then that wasn't enough. And that's usually the thing I like about SACAP is I usually get to sum it all up instead of having it stretch over two months, but no, next month we'll have to share it with so what happened after we recorded what?
0: (laughs) Oh bummer. Well we get the benefit.
1: Yes we do, which is which is nice. Anyway, first thing we have to do is we have to wrap up a little leftover from last time, which is the Siri Grading Kerfuffle. Which has been nicely rounded out, I think, um, with a letter from Apple to all of us here on planet Earth, uh, explaining, apologizing and describing changes. All good things. So the first thing is the letter basically says, we didn't reach the high standard reset resolve. And for that, we apologize. And I'm basically quoting there. So that was, that was nice. Um, they also re explained what. I know we've already been told because I remember an Apple person on stage at either a WWDC or probably WBC, actually. I don't know where else it'd be talked so nerdy. But anyway, what they restated in the letter, which is what we already knew, but it was nice to have it restated, is that when you interact with Siri, it never associates your Apple ID with your question. So your question goes to... Okay, actually, let me back up a second before we can get that far. So Apple's first principle of Siri is that if it can do it locally on device, it will. And so Apple are minimizing the amount of times your phone reaches out to the cloud at all. And that's particularly useful from a privacy point of view, because no matter how bad of a hack happens on Apple's end, if it never leaves your phone, it never leaves your phone. That's, that's a
0: good I, design. I, I find that hard to believe that they do that though, Bart, uh, because I can't initiate a phone call without an internet connection, which makes zero sense.
1: Right. They're it, minimizing, not zeroing.
0: No, but they said if they can do it on the phone. So I've got a phone number for Barbu Shots in my phone, and I say call Barbu Shots, it says, Nope, you don't have an internet connection.
1: Yeah, okay, Come on, you
0: me- could do that and you're not.
1: So but it may it, need some help in doing the translation of your voice, maybe. Right. Like which si- si- Siri, is Siri is a multi-act leisure. thing, right? So there's, there's the figuring out what you asked and then there's the figuring out how to answer your question. And they're two very distinct things. So like they give examples in the letter where if you're, if you're just doing straightforward dictation, they just do that all on device, which is kind of nice. And I think they mentioned that if you ask about your calendar, they don't send your whole calendar into the cloud to get figured out. But, but, but if they may... can't
0: figure out that I'm saying Barbu shots on the phone because they have to do Siri has to be initialized on the on the internet, then they're always going to the internet. They they aren't minimizing it.
1: it well, no, but it always... doesn't mean your data is going to the internet. So we're talking about where your where your where your personal information goes is what we're talking about. So right, but how does... can they do
0: how can they do dictation only locally? But they can't do what is essentially dictation, which is me saying your name. Uh, let's pick somebody whose name you can spell, that they can spell, right? But you know what I mean? That means everything I say has to go to the internet if they can't do that one thing.
1: Okay, but only the phonemes. Like, that's not your personal information. That's. Right, but you right. said dictation is all about. on
0: the device, but it, it can't be.
1: No, no, if but your personal information things. is saying on your device. They are not sending your calendar to the cloud. They are not sending your contacts to the cloud. Yes, yes. But I'm
0: talking about, you said that dictation is all done on device, but it isn't.
1: Well, they said that explicitly. I'm well, we know sure if I was...
0: dictate your name, they don't do it on device because I have to. Maybe there's some other reason, not what we Not what we
1: said here. Maybe okay, yeah. I, you're, you're asking me questions I can't answer. So, that, okay. so I'm just going to have to yeah. draw a line and say, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. I have that no reason to believe me. I have no reason to believe Apple are lying in their letter. That's that's not their style. Yeah, and the whole public traded company Steve Jobs or Steve Jobs losing his job. The other one, Tim Cook losing Tim his Cook. job.
0: Right, right.
1: Um and the, the, so the letter sort of describes Apple's sort of idea and one of the things I really like is they gave some examples to make it practical. So When they have to send information to the cloud, they send as little as possible. So one of the examples they gave is that your location isn't a binary thing. They have different grades of, different fuzzinesses of location, depending on the question you ask. So if you're asking a question about sports teams, they don't need to know what street you're on. So they just basically send the city-state sort of level of detail. And that's good enough for Siri to figure out, you know, which rangers or whatever it is you care about. Or bears (laughs) or I don't know. Okay. But if you ask, where is the nearest Starbucks? Well, that question doesn't make sense at a city level, right? Yeah. The nearest yeah. to me, you actually need to send clear informa- well, location interesting. information. They do the that cloud.
0: so g- different granularity on that. that I, did, I had not heard about that.
1: Yeah. yeah. So they explicitly lay that out as an example in the letter of the levels they go to, to minimize the personal information that goes up to the cloud. And that's a good model. That's a good design. It's, it's, it's a good way of thinking about these things. Yeah. Now, once stuff does go to the cloud, there has to be a way to associate the question with the answer, right? Your phone is asking something of Siri, throwing it off to the cloud for the cloud to go crunch its magic, and then handing the answer back to your device. So at a practical level, that means your question have to have some sort of return address stapled mm-hmm. onto it to identify it in the system and so you can get your answer back. And If you were the tracking kind of company, the obvious answer is, oh, we'll tag it with your username. That'll take care of that. Mm -hmm. Apple don't do that. Apple make a random identifier per device. So me on my Apple Watch and me on my Mac and me on my iPad are not seen as me by the Siri Cloud. They're seen as three different devices. Is it, so it randomized each an time
0: or randomized once?
1: It's not Do clear you know? how often the randomization is renewed. That okay. that isn't explained, so that I can't answer.
0: Okay. All right, but there's no linking of it's not your phone number, it's not your name.
1: Yes, exactly. So it's not your Apple ID, it's not your phone number, it's not your name. And if you're a, if you're like us, a multi-device person, you're not even one thing. So I have three Macs, an iPhone, an iPad, and an Apple Watch. I have lots of identities in Siri, none of which are my Apple ID yeah, or my phone yeah. number.
0: So th- so like a, like a packet going out from your uh, IP address out to the internet and coming back through your router, that's how they bring it back to you, yeah. to the device that asked the question.
1: Exactly. And that's all that really matters, right? It just needs to go back to the device. It doesn't really, you know, they don't need any more than that to be able to answer your question, which is... Again, they're sticking to the principle of tell us as little as you need to and we'll do our best to answer your question. So they keep... Okay, before the changes, let's let's look at the universe before Apple changed anything and then we can describe the changes. So before anything changed, Apple would send your phonemes, your your audio to the cloud. The cloud would attempt to figure out what it was you asked and then that would be done by computer. So you have a, a machine trying to read your phonemes, and your machine would make a transcription. Oh, sorry, their machine would make a transcription, and what would be stored in the cloud would be the transcription, and for six months, also the sound associated with this random identifier. After six months, they may or may not hold on to it if it's useful for training data, but they would throw away the identifier. So then it just becomes one big pot of noises. Not sorry, noises and transcriptions, but they're not even tied to a device anymore. They're just tied to nothing.
0: Huh.
1: And the, they were very explicit about this. The sole purpose of, of all data retained is training Siri. That is all it is used for when it is kept. So it instantaneously it is for answering your question. And if it is stored, it is for training Siri it is not used for anything else. And they're very explicit about that, which is good. Now, a part of the training Siri is quality control effectively, uh, which is where they had human beings listening in to check that when Siri is learning from its mistakes, it's learning accurately. So that basically that the, it's their quality control, which Apple called right. grading. And that was human beings listening to. The audio, reading the transcript and marking Siri's answer. So that seems you know,
0: like a useful thing to have them do.
1: It's very important for the future of Siri. But when they said that they kept your stuff for six months for analysis, we didn't assume that meant human beings listening to what we said.: And right. that is so, what Apple. So you think it's
0: for. a communication problem more than anything else.
1: I mean, factually speaking, they were telling us the truth, but in their own words, they fell short of the mark and they apologized. And that's hmm. the bit they're apologizing for, right? Okay. For not explaining what that word... That word was carrying too much weight. That word was carrying more weight than it realistically should have. And so they apologized for that, which is good. And then now we come to what is changing. So... One thing that is not changing is that the transcriptions, the computer-generated-no-human-involved transcriptions, so the, the, text result, the text form of your question is going to continue to be kept for all Siri users and continue to be used for training Siri. And if you want to use Siri, that is the price you pay for entry, is that you yeah, help the train a Siri. A lot
0: of people didn't talk about that part, is that the text will always be there, but I don't understand how keeping the text helps them at all. I mean, well, because just series look a game of it- two halves,
1: right? So, so it's series a game of two halves. It's text to speech, no, the other one, speech to text, mm-hmm. and it's AI for turning the question into an answer. So, right. if you just keep the text, you have the data you need for the second part of that equation, and the second part is the part we've had the least practice with as a species. Like we've been doing text to speech since Dragon Dictate, sorry, speech to text since Dragon Dictate in what the eighties, nineties. Mm -hmm. this new idea of getting computers to answer questions, that's the new part. That's the hard part. So what they need for that is not the voice. All they need for that is the transcription. So that is enough to help them learn. So it is extremely valuable. Out of the two, the least creepy one is actually the most valuable one. But they still need to double-check that Siri is dealing with accents and you know, weird pronunciations and stuff like that. So they still need some help in terms of the audio. So that's why they're giving an opt-in program. So it's going to be an explicit opt-in where they're going to ask users to help make Siri better by opting in. So I imagine that'll be an interception screen when you set up the iPhone first. And so okay. that will help with the first half of the equation, which is the, spe- the speech to the text part.
0: I'm a little bit bummed that they're not showing how... um getting more into the connection between what you said, what it wrote and what it answered. Like there, especially as it goes device to device, because I, what I really don't understand is why the, the home pod with its perfect speakers is just doing weird crap all the time. And I was walking by the speaker the other day saying absolutely nothing. And Siri went, hi, <laughs> What? I don't even know how to make you do that. Right. And then, uh but that and if I dictate on my mac, it's it's utter garbage. It's maybe sixty percent correct. if i di- di- I dictate on my phone, gets up to about eighty and I dictate on my watch, and it's almost perfect. So the thing with I've, the worst microphone in the smallest possible device and the worst processor is the one that does understand me the best.
1: My understanding from secondhand information because Apple have not explained the architecture out in the open, but from via John Gruber's Bird East. There is not one Siri, there are many series. and so the different products actually connect into different clouds running different versions of software. And there is hmm. a project underway to unite all the Siri's into one Siri, but your your phone is talking to a different cloud than your Mac, which is why they behave differently and the Home Pod is talking to another one as well. Hmm. And that's why they have these inconsistencies, according to John Gruber's birdies. Interesting. So, yeah, I can't really, I mean, it sounds like the kind of thing that would evolve organically, not by design, but by how do we get this out the door? And now they're desperately trying to pay down the technical debt. Yeah. Which happens. Like in the real world, there's a lot of things in the real world that are not how anyone would have designed them. But there (laughs) they are. (laughs) Right. Right. So that that's sort of actually the, the, really, that's the bottom line, right? So it's going to become opt-in for the voice part, and Apple are going to ask you whether you want to opt-in. You're not going to be opted in by default, you're, so it's not opt-out, it's opt genuinely opt-in. And Apple are hopeful that people will choose to help make Siri better. And I'll be honest, I will. I will tick the box and say, yep, please do that.
0: Do you tick the box on every device, I wonder?
1: Every device like- I turn Siri on, on.
0: Well, HomePod, you don't, I don't think you can turn it off.
1: I don't have I don't a HomePod, I would, don't know. I don't
0: think it would be anything if it didn't have it, I wonder.
1: I I don't. I mean, you set up HomePod through an app, I guess, right?
0: Mm, not, well, sort of, I think. Something to it's do like with your the, hub, it's really hard to tell.
1: Like your watch is managed through the, through the Watch app on your phone, how's, how's the HomePod managed?
0: Yeah, I remember there was something we had to do on whatever is the hub. We had to have the home app or something, but it, there's not really control so much. Like you don't really talk it.
1: But you must have at some point told it what your Apple ID is and connected it to your Wi-Fi. And so so there's got to be some sort of UI yeah. at some stage.
0: There, there was, yeah, but it was it was weird. It wasn't something normal,
1: right? But at that point, that would be your that at that setup stage is the point where you would be asked the question, yeah, yeah or nay to yeah. Siri grading.
0: But if you've already got the device running, you're not going to ever see that question.
1: At the point of software update is where I imagine you'll see it because yeah, you Apple press are saying this is going to happen at a software either. update.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Just just curious.
1: My, my guess, right. Pure guess. <laughs> I know nothing. But mm-hmm. some app somewhere is going to get a badge that says one on someone's iPhone in your house. And when yeah. you click on it, it'll say there's a new version of HomePod. Do you agree to the new terms and conditions?
0: Maybe. Like I said, it doesn't go through your phone, so I don't know where it's going to come up. Maybe on the, it, maybe it'll on find the a uh, way. Apple TV. It, it, has to be,
1: it has to be somewhere. It has to be yeah. somewhere yeah. that uses Apple Home, basically.
0: Well, we don't have to speculate for too much longer.
1: Yeah. Yes, no, anyway, so yeah, so that's that's basically where we stand. So Apple have told us that it's coming back after a software update and it will be opt-in. So that, that is the bottom line. So that I think that wraps up that kerfuffle. Okay. So a, a neat little package, which is good because it makes way for the next one. So I, right, this has been big news. So Google's Project Zero released extremely, extremely in-depth and extremely high-quality research on the technical aspects of exploit chains that they found in use in the wild to deploy what they call an implant, but it's basically spyware, onto iOS devices. And I'm going to lay out the facts as best as I have been able to determine them by reading everything I've been able to read. And I'm not really going to go far beyond that, because there's a lot of heat going around, (laughs) and I just don't want to contribute. So what we know is that the malware was extremely sophisticated, requiring multiple separate exploits to be chained together to form a chain which eventually leads to root access. And so it's not... Because of iOS's architecture, you don't find a bug that gets you to root It's like an onion. You have all of these layers of security. And so in order to get from zero to root, you need to break your way through each layer. So what you actually have to do is find an exploit, which gives you a little toe hole. Then you have to find another exploit to get the next, you know, get your little toe in as well as your big toe. And little by little, you worm your way in. So that's why we're talking about exploit chains, not single exploits. So there were 14 exploits collected together into five chains. Hmm. Now, that takes a lot of effort. Despite that amount of effort having gone into these hacks, the malware, even then, was not able to make a permanent home inside iOS, presumably because of the new protections that make it impossible to change the OS's partition. Um, I'm blanking on the name now. But it's that same thing that means that even Root doesn't have the ability to write to certain folders on the Mac these days. You need to reboot Um, and so iOS has that same protection. So even getting root access through that exploit chain, the malware can't make a permanent home. So this malware was always flushed by the simple act of rebooting your phone. It was purely resident in RAM because it could not make itself a permanent home in the device. A like goodness knows... Okay. Oh,
0: that's good to know. Yeah. All of it, the chains... And by the way, a lot of the stuff that you've said here is stuff you've told us before, which is it takes adding a bunch of these little exploits together. And that's why each one is important, because if you get enough of them, then you can actually do some real damage, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Now, that's a change to the olden days where, you know, with Flash, one exploit, there you go, you're away. Uh, right. Because Flash was not architected well. But yeah, with iOS, when there's a vulnerability, it's important because it's a, it's a, it's a building block from which bad things can be built. But in the old days... One building block was all you needed. Now you need multiple building blocks, which is better, but each one is still important. Each one still should be nipped in the bud. And probably the most important ones that nip in the bud are the ones at the edge of the chain, right? Because your chain has to start somewhere. And in the case of these chains, they started in mobile Safari. So the first problem is a bug In Safari, that gets you the first teeny tiny toehold, and then you start to layer your exploits on top of that to get you from Safari all the way down to root access. This was a lot of work. Yes, it was. Yes. So all of the chains started in Safari, meaning that the way you triggered the the exploit was to get someone to visit a web page. And one of the things that Google, that Google mention in their very detailed technical reports, like they call it a deep dive and they are not joking. Like it's not a blog post from Project Zero. It's a blog post which acts as an entry point into five deep, deep blog posts, one for each exploit chain. Like this is serious work. All right. Now I have not read all of this serious work, but Steve Gibson did read all of it and summarized it on security now, which was extremely useful because I just didn't have the time to do that. Um, and one of the things that Steve pointed out is that the Project Zero guys are very clear that the the first layer of the onion, the bugs in Safari, were also present in Chromium, which meant that they were present in pretty much all modern browsers apart from Firefox because Chromium is now at the, the heart of almost everything, right? Chromium is a port of WebKit, which means that a lot of the older code is in common with WebKit, the newer code isn't, they've diverged. But sort of like a Y shape, they have a common root and then they diverged a couple of years ago. Uh, The newest Microsoft Edge that's on its way out is also Chromium, Opera is Chromium, and Google Chrome is Chromium. So if there's a bug that's in old enough code that it's in both Safari and Chromium, it's also in the beta Edge, and it's also in Opera, and it's also in Chrome. But, of course, from that point on, the chains will diverge because if you break, if the say, like, so Android, if you're running the Chrome browser, the outer skin would be the same. That'd all be Chromium. But once you get through the outer skin, you need different exploits for Android, right? It would still right. be true you need a chain, but it would be a different chain from that point forward. So it's just, it's just a point to note that the very first bug in the chain was a bug that was also present in Chromium. Just an interesting point. Another interesting point that I have only heard on security now, and I have not seen called out in the, in the short summaries other people have written, but new hardware protections in the 10 range of phones thwarted these exploit chains. So these chains oh. did not work on the iPhone 10, 10s, or 10 or. Okay. So huh. the, the
0: hardware protection. So the, the, the flaws were still there in the operating system, but the hardware kept it from
1: working. Yes, and that's one of the things. So if you if you imagine, so a software bug involves software doing something it shouldn't. And if the hardware is watching over what the software is doing, so an example of that is that in older versions of computers, there was no concept of any bit of memory being unexecutable. But then we added instructions into a processor that allow you to mark parts of RAM as being definitely data, and that if any app tries to execute a data piece of RAM, then it must be a vulnerability because that's not allowed. It's the app said up front, this is data, and now it's trying to execute it, and therefore the hardware can, literally the Intel chip will say, nope, that one was marked as data, you're trying to execute it, general protection faults, crash, go away. So hardware has been helping to protect us from malware for a very long time. Cool. Yeah. Steve did mention the exact technology that's in those phones that was preventing these exploits, but it—I didn't write it down, and I don't remember. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. What we also know is that Apple fixed the vulnerabilities within six days of being told about them by Google. What we didn't know initially—impressive. It was impressive, but what we didn't know initially, but we now know is that Apple were already in the process of fixing the bugs when Google phoned. They had found out about them four days earlier. And so from Apple's point of view, they fixed them in 10 days.
0: Well, I, th- I think it's time to break into the story here and explain that uh, Google announced this and said a bunch of things that maybe exaggerated the situation or didn't clarify enough, didn't give enough context to really understand what was going on in this information that Bart just said about how we know that Apple was already fixing it was because Apple wrote an open letter about this exploit with a lot more information that makes this way less scarier than the way Google made it sound.
1: Yeah, and for a large part, there's actually only very few points where there's a, a disagreement on the facts between the two companies. The, very few. Yeah. What you basically have is the Project Zero guys are true blue nerds. They wrote a post explaining the technical coolness of these highly complex exploits. They gave no context. And the lack of context was actually much more scary than any of the facts that Apple is quibbling And
0: damaging. With. I mean... It, yes. I don't yes, want to snake the story, but they were things they, they left out that led you to believe things that were not true. Well, and some yeah. of it was not true.
1: <laughs> yeah, like I said, there are two, there are there are I think it's two points that Apple factually disagree with Google on. But is it even two?
0: Well, there's Actually, the, no. how long the exploit was out there? Yes,
1: yeah, so that's the big they,
0: one. Yeah, so Google said it was what a couple of years. Google said Apple,
1: two years. Apple say two months, and that's a fairly big difference. <laughs> it is a big difference. So the estimate of two years is 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 sort of based on the age of the. So it's not an exploit against a version of iOS. That's why there's five chains. Why are there five chains? There's five chains because each one targets a different version of iOS. And those versions of iOS would have come out over multiple years. But if you want to have a successful campaign today, you don't only attack today's iOS because that assumes we live in a world where everyone listens to this podcast and stays patched and stays secure. That's not planet earth. So, if you want a successful campaign today, you actually have to exploit today's version of iOS, yesterday's versions of iOS, and a few versions back. And the mm-hmm. further back you go, the closer you get to attacking every iPhone. So, the fact that the vulnerabilities are in two years' worth of iOS doesn't mean the attacks were happening for two years. So,
0: uh, okay, so that's a case of where they what they said and how it, we interpreted it was different. Well, they could no, have been more clear s- in explaining it.
1: They actually said it was for two years and I don't believe they should have said that. They should have been clearer and said two years worth of two, two years back of versions of iOS, which is not the same thing.
0: Right. Right.
1: So that's a definite point of disagreement. And the other point of disagreement isn't really a point of disagreement. It's a point of less information where basically Google said Apple fixed it in six days because Google assumed that when they told Apple it was news to Apple, Apple clarified and said, well, actually it wasn't news to us. We were already working on this. When, you, when Google phoned. What we don't know is how Apple knew before Google told them. So it may be that Apple discovered this themselves and were quietly fixing it on their own. Or it may be that different security researchers beat Google to the punch and also responsibly disclosed to Apple.
0: Yeah, so that one isn't at least as uh, damaging and flamey and stuff as some of the other things. But but the big thing that they did that that bothered me... And that mm-hmm. was that they they said, yeah, it was on a bunch of websites, and we're not going to tell you which ones they are. And, and that yeah. was, it, it turns out, it was a targeted attack. It, I mean, that left everybody thinking, I wonder if I went there. And it turns it out there's a really, 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 really high probability that you did not.
1: Right. And it didn't make sense. That was the bit of the story that never made sense to me, because... The the amount of work that goes into this kind of exploit chain is huge. Someone we now we now have a pretty good idea who, but let's not jump to that bit of the story just yet. Someone spent a lot of money to make those five exploit chains. That cost either it was you either you pay someone on the black market, which means it costs you a lot of money, Or you do it yourself, in which case it means you have to pay really skilled people for a lot of their time, which costs you a lot of money. No matter which way you go about it, these kind of exploits cost you a lot of money. So what you do not want to do is to accidentally use them where a security company will see you. Because then the cat is out of the bag, right? Which is what happened. Project Zero spotted this. So the cat got out of the bag. And you want to make sure that you get as much value from your investment before the cat is out of the bag, and the way you do that is by being precise in your targeting, so it didn't make sense to have something so valuable be thrown around willy nilly, which was the implication from Google's initial report, and that just didn't well, and, sit and right
0: i don't I don't even know if it was we had to we have to call it implied now they, they said saying, as, as you're much right. as said. Yeah, this is uh, widespread. I mean, I, I don't have the, the quote in front of me, but it was... Indiscriminate,
1: it was, I think was the word.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was basically everybody's out, you know. It was,
1: <sighs> but they also said in the same post, sites with thousands of visits a day. And that doesn't sit well with indiscriminate. It can't both right. be true.
0: <laughs> right, right.
1: There, so oh, what we, here...
0: It, 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 quoting from their article, there was no target discrimination.
1: Apple strongly dispute that in their letter. <laughs> That's but the then other they point to Simply
0: visiting the hack site was enough for the exploit servers to attack your device. That so, may be
1: factually true. Right, right. But the
0: first half of the sentence is all you can hear and you're like, what? This is going to affect me. I don't know.
1: You know. Yeah. And the lack of context is what's what's so damaging there. Uh, but as I, I before we get to the context, which I definitely am going to get to, I just want a few more technical points. I want to wrap up. Okay. So Apple found out about it a few days before Google told them. We're already in the middle of fixing it, and they were very quick on the ball, and they got a security update out. And that security update was released in February. So this all went down quite a few months ago which has led to a conspiracy theory I do not subscribe to. And I would urge people not to subscribe to it because there's a very simple explanation that doesn't involve conspiracy. When, right, So the conspiracy theory is, why are Google telling us in August about something that happened in February?
0: Okay. Is it because
1: Apple have a giant big event in early September? That's the conspiracy theory, (laughs) that this is Google trying to sabotage Apple's big release next week. And now, that doesn't stack up for me for two reasons. First of all, it would have, it definitely, definitely would have been massively responsible for Google to go public with this shortly after the exploits were patched. Because people wouldn't be, you wouldn't be sure that everyone had updated their phones. So you would definitely expect there to be some sort of lag. Now, probably not February to March, April, May, June, July to nearly the end of August. Probably not six months worth of lag for that reason. But those blog posts are stupendously detailed. You do not get a forensic analysis of malware that has been written with the intention of not being reverse engineered in a fortnight. The level of detail in those blog posts is entirely compatible with 6 months of hard work in my opinion. So I don't think you need a conspiracy.
0: So let's let's not even go to the full conspiracy level, but we can say, I think with some confidence that Google needs to be overly cautious in what they do to their competitors in this specific business that they have chosen to anoint themselves with.
1: I That's think that fair. they
0: they it is it is Against their better interest to do anything that does isn't appearing completely agnostic,
1: right? Because they have a potential conflict of interest, so they need to be very careful to 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 be seen to be proactively working against exactly. that conflict of interest.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: Yeah, so, I'd, I'd agree with that.
0: Yeah, I, and and because it invites this conversation, right?
1: It does. It really does. Okay. Um. So it was all patched in February. Um. So, what do we now know about how the malware was actually deployed? Well, what we now know is this was a so-called watering hole attack. And I'm not sure we've had the chance to talk about watering holes recently. Uh, is that a, I don't think it's a term I've spoken out loud on this podcast in many years. There was a bunch of them against developers a few years ago. That I know we talked about, but I think it's been years since we've mentioned the word. So, should I take a moment to explain the concept?
0: Yeah, because I don't, um, I don't think anyone okay. remember it anyway.
1: It's like a mirror image of fishing. So, with fishing, you go, you proactively go after your victim. So you don't wait for the victim to come to you; you go after your victim. A watering hole attack is the opposite, and the the reason it gets its name is from the animal kingdom. So, imagine you're a hungry lion. You have two choices. Oh,
0: is it a honeypot?
1: A honey no a honeypot is proactive, right? So a honeypot is attracting. This is different to a honeypot. This is the third way. Okay. A, a honeypot tries to attract someone to somewhere they weren't going anyway. A okay, watering, a watering hole.
0: hole is different,
1: right? So you do not have to do anything special to make a bison go to a watering hole. Because bison have to drink, and the watering hole is where you can drink. So if you want to catch a bison, you go to the watering hole where you know the bison's coming anyway. I
0: got you. Okay.
1: So that's what a watering hole is. You have to go
0: make it. Okay.
1: Right. You You don't make it. You go to somewhere that you know the people you want are going to be coming anyway. It just saves you all the hassle. You're not trying to attract them. You're not trying to trick them. You know they're coming here, so why don't you just sit there and wait for them? So basically, they hacked websites that they knew... The people they wanted would come to. So that makes it a watering hole attack. I see. Okay. Okay, so let's stop dithering about the bush. From separate reporting, and half of it confirmed by Apple, we now probably know that the victim... Actually, okay, the thing we're most sure about is the victim here. Who was attacked? The answer is the minority Uyghur community in the Xinjiang province of China, they are a Muslim community in China, and the Chinese government have been actively persecuting them for years. Literally locking them into concentration camps, which they called schools, vocational schools is the euphemism they use for them, where they brainwash them and then release them back into the community. The like the campaign against the Uyghurs makes for deeply unpleasant reading. Uh, It doesn't really make the news much in the Western world. One of the things I have gotten from what we talked about yesterday, the fact that i like to listen to the world news from the BBC World Service, is that they have had their eye on the Uyghur ball for years. And so to me, what was going on with the Uyghur community wasn't news, but I think it may have been news to a lot of people quite how horrible this is. And so Apple explicitly named the Uyghur community as the, the, the victims here. And other reporting does too. So I think we can be pretty confident that that's who, who they were going after. So the websites were websites for the Uyghur community.
0: Are they, uh, so did they actually say that China did it? I thought they avoided saying China.
1: Ah, right. That's the bit I haven't got to yet. So I said, we're sure about half of the thing, which is Uyghurs.
0: So, but did did Apple say Uyghurs?
1: No. Yeah, Sorry, yes. Apple said Uyghur. All okay. the independent reporting said Uyghur. So the Uyghur okay. bit I'm prepared to say we're pretty darn sure about.
0: And, and Apple did say that?
1: They did say that. So Apple Saban okay. actually uses the word Uyghur. Okay. So it's spelled, by the way, it's pronounced Uyghur, but it's spelled U-Y-G-H-U-R. If you're reading exactly headlines and you're going, I don't it. see any word that looks like Uyghur. Yeah. It doesn't look like it. <laughs> That's how you say it. Um. Now, the independent reporting was clear who was attacking the Uyghurs. And to be frank, current affairs makes it pretty obvious who was attacking the Uyghurs, right? It doesn't take a genius. It, the Chinese government is the absolute most likely person to be attacking the Uyghur Muslim community. Mm-hmm. Apple, leave the word Chinese out of their statement, which I presume is down to pure economic self-interest. Hmm. Um, they, they,
0: yeah. do Okay. Remember, we were gonna we were gonna leave this up to the to the listener to decide what they think. I think there's yes possibility that if you don't know who did it, then you don't say who did it. What they were trying to do was lay down facts where Google had uh, misrepresented or incorrectly stated facts. Or okay. I guess they aren't facts if they're incorrect. Uh, <laughs> and in this case, they don't have a fact. They may not have the fact that uh, that China
1: did it. You can put don't the together knows.
0: and assume it does, but yeah.
1: So we can't know if Apple know knows the Chinese government and have chosen not to say, or if Apple have chosen not to say because they're not sure, and if they get it wrong, then they have seriously burnt a bridge that they don't really want to burn. It could be either, yeah. you're right. Yeah. yeah. So I think that gets us to all of the key points I had in the show notes. Have I missed something? No, I don't think. Oh, so. I have, I have, I have, oh, I have. I'm
0: sorry. Yes, you totally have.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, what we also know from independent reporting is that this attack wasn't an isolated incident, and I've already hinted at that. Like the the persecution of the Uyghur community is not something that um, is just this one off event. It it has been ongoing in many forms and different, att- different vulnerabilities in other OSs have also been exploited targeting the Uyghur community. So different vulnerabilities in Android and Windows have also been used to target Uyghurs. So it's not that the same bugs exist in Android. It's that similar levels of problem in other OSs, including Android and Windows, have been used to target the same people as part of the same if you want to use the analogy of the same war, but not the same battle, maybe I don't know how how you want to describe that, but so that is the, it is, it sits into a bigger picture, which includes other OSs. It's not the bugs are iOS specific. The it's part of a bigger picture.
0: So uh, one of the things I wanted to, to bring up here was a very very interesting and balanced and logical conversation between Leo Laporte and Rene Ritchie on MacBreak Weekly, and it, it was interesting because Rene made a bunch of really good points about this new letter from Apple and what Apple knew and 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 illustrated it quite well. But he said, well, yeah, but you know what, one of the things they didn't do was they didn't talk about how this exploit actually attacked Windows and Android and that proves that they're, you know, nefarious and doing all these horrible things and misrepresenting the truth and and Leo said wow you know I see your source here that you sent on that but uh I'm not finding more corroboration of that the information in that source and so he started questioning it a little bit and as as he and Rene went back and forth he kept researching and what he what he came up with was exactly what you just said which is it's not that this attack attacked Google or Android and uh, and Windows it's that there's other attacks that did affect them that were at other times and have nothing to do with this particular attack but they are similar in nature. And so Renee was kind of trying to make it sound like this attack attacked those other operating systems and it didn't.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a subtle distinction, but I think it's important.
0: Yeah. and, and I, I just really appreciated that particular debate on Macbreak Weekly because as they peeled it back together, they came up with what was a, a better analysis, I think, of this of the situation. Yeah, that's not that's not normal for Leo. You know, <laughs> you know that kind of measured conversations. So.
1: Well, I was going to say what you're describing is some the absence of what you're describing as having happened is the main reason I do not listen to MacBreak Weekly anymore. Um, yeah, uh, or, or, or Twit.
0: It comes and goes. It comes and goes. <laughs> but yeah, yes, I, I,
1: I, I at some point there was a straw and it broke the camel's back, and it wasn't even a big deal. It was just I. I'd had my quota, I'd had my fill. I was like, I'm listening to the podcast getting cranky instead of enjoy, enjoying the experience. Sod of that.
0: <laughs> and I think you have enough other shows.
1: I do, as, as we <laughs> proved yesterday, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, so my sort of thoughts on this, um I think if we want to find the silver lining, we should note how much work was needed to get these kind of exploits into iOS. It is not something you do on a whim, and that is good. So a lot of people naively think of security as being binary. It is either secure or it is not, and that just isn't true. That isn't true of Fort Knox. That isn't true of your house. That isn't true of anything. What it is always a balancing act between is how much time and effort do I have to spend to circumvent the security in exchange for the amount of value I can get out the other side. So for you and I, as regular iPhone users, we are not valuable enough for someone to spend the sheer amount of resources that went into these attacks. So that is good for us. So, you know, so the way I think of it is Fort Knox, they spend an awful lot on security because if someone breaks the security, they get a lot of gold, which means it's very valuable to break Fort Knox security. My house has much less security because if you break into my house, you get very little. But in right. one way, they're equally secure because the bottom line is it, it, it as long as it costs you more to break into my house than you'll make from stealing my stuff, it's okay. And that's true of Fort Knox as well. But the end result is that Fort Knox has lots of security and I have very little. So, right, right. Uh, I'm also reassured by the speed of Apple's response. Um, like it is, it's just a fact of life that all software is written by human beings, all human beings makes mistakes, therefore all software mm-hmm. has bugs. And so what's really important is how do companies respond when there is a bug? Not if. Right. right. When. And this seems like a good response to me.
0: Yeah, and the, the fact only that the... they were working on it and the fact that they did fix it. So uh, what looked like quickly, at least from the Google perspective, right?
1: And even if you add in the extra four days for the fact that they were already working on it, that's still good. Right? That's It takes... Yeah. When you're writing software that's literally used on hundreds of millions of devices, doing that quickly without breaking everyone's device is not trivial. So getting it done in 10 days is frankly impressive as purely software engineering is. Yeah, right, It's, it's right. impressive. And then the only other point I have in my show notes is I just wish Project Zero had provided some more context and then mm-hmm. there wouldn't have been a kerfuffle and we wouldn't have had to defuse a whole bunch of over-the-top Simple. headlines and it just would have all been much better. They just... Yep. Context would have helped a lot here. So I have lots of links in the show notes and i have a note above those links i have not altered the headlines so these headlines reflect how the story broke so from top to bottom there in the chronological order i encountered the stories and you'll see that initial headlines leave out facts that we later learn and then as you scroll down through those headlines they begin to develop the extra facts okay so just to, i just wanted to make that point at the top and i've clearly marked the opinion pieces as being separate from the fact pieces
0: did you okay. the initial Google one is opinion? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I did not. That, that not would either. have been slightly passive-aggressive and perhaps not uh, unreasonable. Accurate. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that. notable security updates. Google have released their September 2019 security fixes. Update if you can, if you can't, consider an alternative phone.
0: And I would like to say right here that I threw a... Uh, an Android phone into the bin because I couldn't get the latest security updates and I now have an updatable phone.
1: Yay. I'm hoping you recycle the other one.
0: Yeah, I actually technically still have it in a drawer because I keep going back and forth between recycling and giving it away. And giving it away is irresponsible but might actually help somebody, so I don't know which one I'm going to do.
1: Could you could you root it?
0: I don't know anything about it. It's just that. a thought. It's a yeah. way of
1: recycling, right? If you root it and put a modern OS on it... The That's, vanilla Android that or might something. be fun to learn how to do. It could be mm-hmm. a segment on the show. There you go. Yeah. Um. Firefox have released version 69 of their browser, which contains a bunch of critical security patches. I don't mention every every update to Firefox, just like I don't mention every update to Chrome. But this one I am mentioning because it does a little bit more than just fix the security bugs. It also marks a big change in Firefox's attitude to tracking cookies. They have been slowly building up to this, adding in effectively Firefox's equivalent of of Apple's intelligent tracking prevention. And it has gone from being a beta feature to being a feature that is available to everyone but turned off by default to the obvious final step in the progression in Firefox 69. It is on by default. So Firefox proactively blocks site to site tracking as of Firefox 69. In a related story, the Firefox blog made it clear that they will not be following Google Chrome's lead in tweaking the APIs to make their browser more hostile to ad blockers. So Firefox is not following Google down that rabbit hole. Again, there's an obvious conflict of interest creeping in there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Windows, Linux and to Mac users who are also Google Chrome users really should make sure that their browser is fully patched because Google issued a warning saying that there's a really nasty bug they just fixed. So um, hmm. I believe Chrome auto updates, assuming you remember every now and then to turn Chrome off and turn it on again. <laughs> and given how rarely we reboot our computers, I, I have a lot of apps that have like my apps have uptimes of weeks. So if you're a Chrome user, maybe just, you know, shut down Chrome for once and, and restart it. It will remember your tabs and stuff, I presume. I don't know. I don't use it, but I presume it will. Uh, users of Samsung, Huawei, LG and Sony Android phones should make sure that their firmware is up to date as well as their Android. Hmm. This is because a weakness was found in how many models of phone by these manufacturers implement a feature that allows carriers to send provisioning profiles over the air. So that is configuration settings for your phone pushed down from your carrier over the air. And that is a very useful thing for carriers to be able to do. However, you should secure that because it's a really dangerous thing if it's not secured and it turns out those models of phone didn't do that. Allowing a very nasty form of phishing where you basically get settings pushed by a bad guy appearing to be settings being sent by your carrier, which you will obviously trust and install because you don't want to lose your phone's functionality. So it is important you get those security updates. And they're firmware updates, not Android updates. Uh, Notable news. Just to highlight or underline or, you know, illustrate is probably the word I'm looking for, how why it is what everyone's saying that it's time to move away from SMS as a security mechanism for anything. A bunch of tweets appear in a certain Jack Dorsey's Twitter feed, i.e. the CEO of Twitter, that he did not write. He did not actually have his account taken over. What Ooh. happened was his phone number was spoofed to trick Twitter's SMS gateway, which allows you to text tweets to Twitter, which will then get posted as you, into thinking that tweets had come from Jack Dorsey, because the from address on the SMS message was faked. So Mm. Twitter have turned off the ability to SMS to Twitter, And they are going to selectively turn it back in, back on only in countries where SMS is just really important. It's just part of the culture and only after the carriers in those companies have taken steps to prevent the spoofing of the from address on those SMS messages so that it will work properly. And in those countries, I don't think there's anything to be done against SIM swapping, but at least in the US, I presume they're not going to turn it back on in the US. I think we're talking about African countries where the the cell phone network is basically the internet where they use like their currency is even based on SMS messages and peso and stuff. Um, So at least in the US, I think this puts an end to this particular exploit and they're going to be very careful about it in other countries. What they're also doing is reviewing their 2FA approach because at the moment they use SMS for two-factor auth as one of their options. And I think that's probably worthy of reviewing, and one assumes the answer will be, "Oh yeah, we should stop doing that." Yeah, and just in a related I get my post, banks to stop using it, <laughs> that would be nice too. Yeah, yeah. In a related post, uh, I more have a post: how to set up two-factor authentication for Twitter, and I would just recommend people do that. Yes, in this case, two-factor auth wouldn't have solved the problem, but there is lots of problems two-factor auth does solve while we're thinking about Twitter security, and um, also. Any two-factor auth is better than no two-factor auth. So, there we go. Now, I have decided to start grouping news stories related to the big companies together. So, Google News. The people behind the Brave browser have accused Google of using so-called push pages to circumvent the GDPR. They've done a whole bunch of impressive research on this and they have passed it on to the Irish Data Protection Commissioners. uh, Because... The Google's EU headquarters are in Ireland, which means from a GDPR point of view, the Irish Data Protection Commissioner is the referee over Google. So Brave are hoping that there will be some enforcement action taken against Google. To Basically, this is allowing Google to share personal information with advertisers that they're not supposed to be sharing with advertisers.
0: The thing I found interesting about this article too was that the uh, the proof they had was the CEO of Brave Finding his data having been breached because and that breach being used because of what they had done.
1: Yeah, which is a very interesting way of fi- getting standing in a court. Yeah, and a lot of headlines. Yeah, and I'm assuming the CEO was game for this. I don't think it's an accident, given Brave's business model. I'm assuming this is very intentional. We need a test person so that we have a strong case. How's about the CEO? It's it's a clever tactic. The US Federal Trade Commission have fined YouTube $170 million for breaching COPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, after they were caught telling the regulators they had no minors on their platform, so they were <laughs> not subject to COPA whatsoever. <laughs> Liars! While simultaneously telling people who they're trying to sell ads to, quote, today's leader in reaching children aged 6 to 11, <laughs> describing themselves, and quote, unanimously voted as the favourite website for kids 2 to 12. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Right, so talking out a two sides of their mouth there just a little bit. So as well as the fine, which is a pittance for someone like YouTube, uh, they're also being forced to change how they set up their website to bring their website into compliance with COPA, because quite clearly there are under 13-year-olds on that website.
0: <laughs> and they're and they're selling based on that right
1: and they're selling based on that yeah i mean it, it's i it's, i find it hard to find anything positive to say about that kind of bareface lying yeah uh thank you now because this is this is me and you i have structured these stories in a very specific order we now get to switch the good news about google Google have expanded their Android bug bounty program to cover third-party apps with more than 100 million downloads, i.e. Google are using their money to pay to make other people's software more secure if it's popular on Android. That's called being a good steward of a platform. Yeah. So two thumbs up from me for that. (laughs) And Google have also open-sourced their differential privacy library. So other people can benefit from Google's expertise at this privacy-protecting technique. So again, I can only say, good, thank you, well done. Uh, Speaking of timely reminders, uh, a thing which is a really big deal all over the internet are romance scams, and they very often go after, unfortunately, single women and older people. And they basically, you have people in usually African countries strike up a pretend friendship on some form of social media. And they put a lot of time and effort into it. And then they arrange for some sort of pretend problem where their mother is in hospital and they desperately need to borrow a few, a few thousand dollars or $10,000 or $20,000. And these stories mm-hmm. slowly escalate. And you end up with people being out thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in some mm-hmm. cases and being too embarrassed to do anything about it, because in hindsight, they really should have seen that they were being had. Um, but if
0: they, you can picture how, uh, you know, over a long time, you know, Stephen yeah. gets, he could be somebody in, in another country trying to get money for me. You know? He is <laughs> in you another know, country, I mean, it's half true. <laughs> right, right, right. But I mean, it's a friendship we've struck up online. We've never met yeah. in person. I don't know for real that he is who he says he is, right? Yeah. You know, that guy's got shifty eyes, I can tell. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, I mean, it's the ultimate, right? The word con, con man is short for confidence trickstery. Oh, is it
0: really? Oh, it that's is.
1: interesting. So, yeah. And that this is, this is vintage con here. the a mm. romance scam. It's a real deal. It's con
0: person now, but.
1: Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah. But as I say, the term predates such things. Well, you do know that the etymology of man is person. There were were-man yeah, and weave man
0: I don't want to go near that.
1: <laughs> well, that's why we have manual, right? It, it, it means that a human does it. It doesn't mean that man does it. Like, if yeah, you manually not, I don't want to it. get
0: into this right now. Okay. I have many opinions. <laughs>
1: just, yeah, I was making it, but anyway, yeah. Um, just etymological trivia, more than anything else. Um, the DOJ has arrested, sorry, charged 80 people in relation to a global scam, basically a global ring pulling off romance scams 80 people, this is big Mm -hmm. business Facebook news Facebook have said that the reason people, uh, strangers were able to get into kids messenger chats was because of a quote unquote technical error, this was in response to a letter from US senators asking exactly how did this happen Google, sorry Facebook Uh, and they said oh technical error okay, don't know how convincing an answer that is but that is the answer Security researchers have found a database containing the personal information of about 419 million Facebook users. The database, Are they even ap- trying Bart. Jeez. Well, see, this is this is chickens continuing to come home to roost. The data is not current. The data is old, and it appears to be data from the era when. Cambridge Analytica and so forth were able to get API access. So it basically appears to be data that was harvested from back in the day when Facebook were particularly bad about protecting data. So it's not a recent leak, but nonetheless, a lot of the information remains current because a lot of people's names remain well, their names, and a lot of people's phone numbers remain their phone numbers. A lot of information stays quite static over time. And the database did contain 133 million phone numbers.
0: Hmm.
1: So yay. Uh, Facebook also lost control of the private key used to digitally sign one of their Android apps. Now, they have taken some action. They've updated the app, but uh, they are being criticized by the security community for being quite lackluster and slow in their response and not proactively telling users how important it is that they update. So basically, they have searched the web for fraudulent apps using this digital signature and lo and behold there is actual malware out there using this digital signature so Facebook really should be more proactive about pushing people to update their apps but anyway that is what it is technically speaking if you're fully patched you're fine so be fully patched Uh, and then we flip into good news mode so Facebook are replacing the not particularly clear setting called tag suggestions which is a privacy control controlling Facebook's facial recognition technology, with a much clearer setting called facial recognition. I'm seeing this reported under weird headlines like Facebook expands facial recognition. And I'm trying to really hard to find why this is being portrayed as a bad thing, because as far as I can see, the actual reality of what Facebook are doing hasn't changed. What's changed is that the setting is now intelligible by human beings.
0: Yeah, that is
1: interesting. Sh- Surely, that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I always have to point out my favorite thing about this in Facebook is that um, Steve Sheridan had a profile in Facebook for, I don't know, five years or whatever before uh-huh. we retired. And then he changed his uh, appearance by growing a uh, Van Dyke beard. And from that day forward, Facebook is like, I got no idea who this guy is. I don't know. It's impossible to figure it out. <laughs> For six years, I have had to manually tag him. And it's like, really? Huh. Okay. If you say so, that's
1: what he looks like to be.
0: No learning going on here whatsoever. Yeah, Yeah, it's
1: done. It's not evolving at all. That's interesting. That's bad AI. If you're going to use AI in facial recognition, you should do it well. Yeah. Or maybe it's a good thing they're not good at it. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) right. right. And finally, in the good news category... Facebook have tightened the rules in the United States for political ads on their platform. I mean, the details are in the story from The Verge linked in the show notes, but it involves basically proving that you are who you say you are and that your organization is who they say they are so that they actually have proper attribution of the ads to the campaign that they are for. So that can only be a positive thing to have some transparency and some controls on political ads in the upcoming 2020 election. Good, good now, lots and lots of people reported this story It made it into the nocilla castaway's um slack room um, I think you pinged me about it directly. Deep fakes are not just a bit of fun they're not just dangerous oh, this in is terms, scary. Of, yeah, they're not just dangerous in terms of politics and basically smearing a politician like the making Nancy Pelosi look drunk one from a few weeks ago a few months ago mm-hmm. Scammers successfully used a deep fake of a CEO's voice to fool an employee into transferring a quarter million dollars to the malicious actor.
0: That's a lot of money. That one's terrifying. So now it's not don't click links from people you don't know. (laughs) Mm. Don't click links from people that you do know and you're not expecting them. Now it's don't answer the phone when your boss calls.
1: So do do well, I guess if your boss is if the call i d doesn't clearly show it's your boss, be double extra suspicious, maybe,
0: yeah, but if the boss is on travel and she yeah. calls you and says, uh, hey, uh, we've been working on that account with yeah, I mean this is definitely gonna be spear fishing, right this one is oh yeah, no, very quite, spear, quite speary." uh but you know you know we've got that contract we're working on with uh, Edison Electric and I uh, I'm going to need to move this much money over to here for the uh, contract negotiations got
1: it and that's actually so in order for this to work you'd be you'd need to be able to have an actual conversation so it would have to be someone who's been embedded for a while maybe maybe they compromised the CEO's password and so they've been reading the CEO's email and then you could construct a very plausible conversation because you can say, yeah, so that big project that we've almost got across the line, it's really important that to get the last step, like, you know, if, if you were sitting in the inbox of a CEO, you could pick a moment when you know the underling is going to do what you tell them.
0: Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're very terrifying. And, and you don't even have to be nearly as good at it as doing the, um, uh, what if your CEO does a lot of public speaking? It'd be very right. easy to to create that person's voice, right?
1: Yes, and we the have other quite way this... a bit of
0: Tim of Tim Cook, for example. You could deep fake his voice pretty e- not pretty easily. Yeah. But compared to doing video, doing audio, it's brilliant. What do you need to do video for?
1: Right, yeah, and exactly. This was audio only, voice. So yeah, and this same tactic is also used in email spear phishing, where you don't even have to do the deep fake. You just send a very convincing email. Again, waiting for your moment, sitting sitting in the organization, watching the email traffic, even the email traffic of an underling is valuable enough to do a, a, a spear phishing attack sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think the only takeaway is if you're asked to transfer vast watches of cash, all of your Spidey sensors should be turned up to 11 and you should be just extra on the lookout for something being off. Yeah. It's your best bet. Not a guarantee. Yeah, I- Ask questions. That is, I think, you're right. That is the only thing I can think of. But if they're in, if they're deep enough embedded, even that may not be enough. But it certainly can't do any harm.
0: Yeah. Are you sure? (laughs) What's your middle name?
1: That's an easy question to answer because the deep fake person would go, yes, of course I'm sure.
0: (laughs) Well, I guess it's a question. Are they real time creating the audio or did they create a set of audio and pushed it? You know, are, are can they actually answer questions? You know, in their like, do they have a synthesizer that I can say, uh, "Oh yeah," you know, definitely give that money to me, and then the, what? What comes out of my synthesizer is Tim Cook's voice.
1: I believe, but I am not certain. I believe it is the the real time. I mean, that is sort of when oh. you see the demonstrations <laughs> of deep fake. You have an actor being projected onto someone image.
0: yeah yeah and if they haven't done that they will in the what before we're done with the call
1: right yeah that is the if we haven't arrived there that's quite clearly where we're headed yeah so the next yeah, that story one, that one gave me
0: a cold chill
1: like I oh don't yeah know how you convince oh, yeah.
0: people not to do what your boss tells you to do
1: yeah oh yeah i mean the power dynamics, everything about that scenario was extremely clever like evil genius clever uh, the second last story we have here is one that may arguably have been worthy of a security medium, maybe not. Anyway, there is something called the Interactive Advertising Bureau. It's an ad industry group. Basically, people what make money selling ads online have gotten together into an industry group. That industry group follow or funds something called IAB Labs, and they are working on a proposal they're sending to the W3C, the standards body for the internet, proposing an alternative to tracking prevention as is being deployed by Firefox and Apple. Their proposal is we get rid of every site doing their own cookies and instead we sign up to a centrally managed by the ad industry unique identifier to identify us personally on all of our devices, on all websites, and then they'll all promise to obey our preferences. And if (laughs) we don't want to be tracked, they won't track us. Of all the people on planet Earth, who I would trust to run a system like that, but the but it's she- going to be
0: overseen by Equifax,
1: right? <laughs> with it- with uh, with the
0: YouTube people helping,
1: right? Like it's God. of all of the people who have the most obvious conflict of interest, could you, I like, could you set the incentives up any worse? And then you have the fact that. You are collect Like, they're saying that we will not associate this with real identities like names. If you know every website I go to on every device I own, you know who I am. You can't not know who I am. There is no way with that much data you cannot de-anonymize me. No way. <laughs> so that's horse poop. And secondly, if we assume... That they are being a hundred percent honest and that they really will do what they promise. They have created the ultimate Fort Knox of data. The most and I mean Fort Knox is in tempting target, not well secured target, because their incentives aren't to secure it. Well anyway. They have just aggregated the most valuable treasure trove of personal data in existence. I do not believe they can protect something so valuable. No.
0: No. Everything about no. this
1: is Stupid, in my opinion. And good luck to them suggesting it to the W3C. Apple and Mozilla are members of the W3C. I would love to be in the room when they're asked for their opinion. I think the <laughs> laughter would be heard many corridors away.
0: <laughs> that would be really fun.
1: It would. Okay, we got to turn this around from bad news into good news. All right, so, Good. Security researchers decided to scientifically test the perennial conspiracy theory that apps like Facebook are constantly listening, and that explains why their ads are so good. So that we all have these anecdotes where we're in the car, we're talking to our kid about something or other, and then the next day we have a Facebook ad about the same thing. And because of how our memories work, if we'd had that same ad a few days ago, we wouldn't have paid attention to it, wouldn't have remembered it. There's a, there's a whole bunch of cognitive biases going on. But regardless, it really freaks us out. And we get the, the perennial theory is that they must be listening. They so must be. how would you be. test that? Yeah.
0: Stephen gets yeah. and I go back and forth on this constantly.
1: Right. So how would you test that scientifically? By they saying got a, a bunch of stuff. Of, they got a bunch of brand new devices. They put them into a room. And in that room, they had a script. And they basically, those phones were only ever exposed to certain conversations. And they primed those conversations with a whole bunch of trigger words. And then they watched the ads. The ads never reflected the triggers. So say again, what exactly did they... How so did they, they intentionally, they, they got a bunch of phones and they put them in a closed room. And they know every word said in the presence of those phones. And mm-hmm. they tried to get the phones to advertise based on a certain... So they frame.
0: just started yelling, Bounty Paper Towels!
1: Well, no, so much more... Nestle's much more quick, organic, Nestle quick. Right, so much more organic. So they started having actual conversations in these rooms about specific products to see whether the ads would change.
0: Well, that's what so I so mean. They yelled Bounty Paper Towels at it.
1: But more intelligently, so they actually had, like, conversations in front of the phones, okay. with people talking okay. about the importance of tissue paper and how they really like Bounty or whatever, Right. Yeah, the ads so I, do not shift based on your conversations in the presence of the devices.
0: My my example of that, I was on a plane next to a guy, and he pulled out this uh, this little device. It looked like a pen and it uh it was orange and it had a little little tip on the end and he breathed into it and then he looked at an app on his phone and it almost looked like he was doing like a breathalyzer hmm. i couldn't let this go i had to find out what this was turned out we ended up with a a 20 minute conversation cuz the guy's a doctor and he's testing uh the this keto diet and there's one oh, of the, the, this uh this device allows you to measure the ketones that you're i don't know yeah. producing or consuming or something and uh and anyway, I thought it was really unusual, and I took a picture of it, and when I got back home, I had an ad for that pen in Facebook. I was like, what? But of course, I had looked it up on the internet to see what it was.
1: <laughs> of course you had, because
0: it was interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the own silver lining here is that the reason the ads are so eerily good is because the profile these companies build up on you based on everything else you do is so accurate. So yay, they're not tracking us with our voice because they don't need to. <laughs> so
0: maybe the trick is to constantly be just searching for completely random stuff, right?
1: Yeah, I guess that's the best you can do. So moving on to suggested reading, PSA's tips and advice. There is WordPress admins, beware. There is an active malware campaign exploiting vulnerabilities in unpatched plugins being used to create additional admin accounts on people's WordPresses. Ah! Yeah. Not good. So patch, 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 How do you patch, make patch, it patch, stop?
0: Patch. Oh, there's a patch for it.
1: Well, no, no. They're using every vulnerability they can find to oh, okay. inject admin accounts.
0: Got you. Got you. Okay. So if you haven't patched, duh.
1: Yes, exactly. I, I am and really
0: good at procrastinating things. Really, really, really good at going, okay, I'll do that in a minute. I'll do that in a minute. When I go into WordPress and I have just pushed, I've finally finished a 10,000 word blog post and I'm ready to push, you know, do the final post and I see that little button to, to update, I update immediately.
1: Me too actually. Anytime I'm in up you know posting a blog post or posting show notes or whatever if it, if there's a if there's an update badge it gets done. Now, if you've been a little bit sluggish, probably also go to the users tab and have a look for any users you didn't make. Mm. And keep while you're at it, while
0: I go do that right now. <laughs> yes.
1: And while you're at it, there is actually a security update to WordPress released a few days ago.
0: okay. I have no updates to do. We're good. There we go. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I've got Alistair, Bart, Dorothy, me, and Steve. Okay, I think we're good.
1: That sounds (laughs) legit. Um, Except for
0: that Dorothy character, man. She's shifty. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of shifty friends.
1: Notable breaches and privacy violations. The Dutch privacy regulators have ruled that while changes Microsoft made to Windows 10 in 2018 have brought the OS closer to being compliant with the GDPR. What's at stake here is their their their, uh, telemix information they send back to Microsoft HQ. Uh, But, the Dutch privacy regulator says, they have not yet done enough. So they've prepared a file which they have sent to the data protection commissioners in a wee place called Ireland, because, like (laughs) Facebook and Google, the headquarters within the EU for Microsoft is... Dublin, so the Data Protection Commissioner in Ireland is responsible for regulating Microsoft in Europe. So Ireland have received the file and are investigating. Hmm. The EFF and Mozilla have teamed up to scold Venmo yet again for their app's privacy failings. Basically, Facebook and the EFF think that sharing your purchases publicly by default is daft, and dangerous and not what people expect from financial apps.
0: Yeah, that is the weirdest thing in the world about Venmo. I mean, when I went in there, I was like, why can I see that Lindsay bought beer for somebody? You know, that seems kind of weird. I immediately wrote to every relative and friend of mine and said, so, you know, I can see this. And I gave a quote of something they had done, you know, hopefully looking for the more embarrassing ones and said, yeah, here's the button to push to stop that. Why don't, and even if it's just between, it, it's public by default. The next level is to friends. I, yeah. I don't need my friends knowing how much I pay to get my fingernails done. That's not what the, why is sharing, that's not a social network. Stop it.
1: Well, actually, they think they are. Yeah, they, think- they do. They think that's what makes them good. They think that's their thing. We are the financial social network. So it's fun. They actually say it's fun to share your purchases. And I'm thinking, this is why I don't use Venmo, by the way. You couldn't pay me to use Venmo. I'm sorry. Any company who thinks that my financial transactions are social media is an idiot.
0: Well, you use PayPal and that's who owns Venmo.
1: Yes, I use PayPal because the PayPal product is not a social media.
0: Right. You just said any company that thinks that. Well, no, because PayPal
1: bought Venmo, right? So Venmo is venmo is owned yeah. by paypal but it isn't paypal yeah we're splitting hairs
0: yeah i use that one in reverse where i say i'm really excited about amazon owning ring because rings is ring is a bunch of creepy sleazy people and so i'm hoping amazon is less creepy than they are
1: well if they're good stewards they will provide oversight
0: yeah i hope so i hope so
1: too uh the next door app which is a sort of a neighborhood watch app we're caught sending physical snail mail letters on users' behalf without their proper permission. This happened in the Netherlands. I don't know how Mm. wide this campaign was. But they basically popped up a message where they were saying, yeah, we can send out invitations on your behalf to your neighbours for free. Would you like to? And the user Mm. clicked the button and then the webpage did, oh, I'm sorry, this is expired. And they went, oh, okay, fair enough. They were sort of expecting to get to choose who these letters would go to. And then a few weeks later, their neighbor went, why did you send me a letter telling me to join this app? Uh. Yeah. So, yikes. Uh, The latest kerfuffle is a Chinese face-swapping app called Xiao. And apparently, its privacy policy was horrendous and the internet went, wah, and then it changed. Okay. Notable (laughs) IoT vulnerabilities. There is a (laughs) good analysis. It went, wah, and then they changed it. I think they changed it. I know, but I just
0: like the way you did it.
1: (laughs) And notable IoT vulnerabilities. There is a botnet currently growing that is targeting set-top boxes running the Android OS because a whole bunch of different models of TV set-top box running Android have something called the Android Debug Bridge left on by mistake. This is Mm -hmm. a mechanism by which developers can get full root access on their Android devices. It's not supposed to be on on production devices. But
0: is it only the uh, set-top boxes, or does it affect? It? Did you see if it affected any TVs?
1: This particular botnet seems to be targeting specific models of set-top box that are known to have this problem. That doesn't mean that there are not TVs that also have this problem. Yeah. Uh, the best thing you can actually do is to use something like Shields Up to scan yourself, because port five 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 four fives is the port used by Android Debug Bridge, so ADB. And so if if you go to your public IP address and port 5555 is listening, you have a dodgy Android app. Because what seems to be happening is that um, this is... So leaving ADB on is a mistake. That's just a whoopsie. That should not be in production firmware. But in theory, our router should protect us from this kind of whoopsie. Unfortunately, by default, most home routers enable something called universal plug-and-play. And And it appears that ADB says, ooh, it's really important I'm accessible to the developer. And it asks using the plug-and-play protocol for the router to open up the port. So it gets mapped. So less than the second, turn off pretty well plug-and-play. It's a bad idea to have apps on your network reprogram your router behind your back. 600 Thousand GPS trackers from lots of different brand names, details in link in show notes, have a wonderfully secure default password protecting that valuable location data of one, two, three, four, five, six. That's brilliant. (laughs) Yeah. 600,000 of them. Awesome. Yeah. So the IoT continues to be a train wreck of security. Uh better news. I think this also was shared on the Podfeed Slack, like, which is a great place by the way people if you're not in there. Um slash slack bing, bing. Police have hijacked a botnet and remotely killed 850,000 malware infections. So yay.
0: I loved this story. The, can I talk about this one just yes, a little bit? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so the fun part about this was this was I believe it was a vast that found it originally. One of the, one of the malware vendors found it, found this, this malware, figured out where it was, uh, the command and control servers and the servers were in a different country. I want to say, I'm going to say France, but I'm going to double check that as I scan through and, and talk. Um, they found that, uh, the servers were in another country. And so they contacted the, uh, yes, it was France. They contacted the French police. It was a vast. And they contacted him and said, look, we want to replicate this. We can replicate this server and we can mm. disinfect all of these machines without pushing anything to them. And then Ooh, shut nice. it down. It was it was spectacularly beautiful. I mean, it was just like, Whoa, you know, like the best thing ever. I love this
1: one. Yes, we have commanded the machines to clean up. Yeah. Yeah, it was, was nice. I like it. Um, few more stories in there. I won't go into opinion and analysis. One that sort of caught my eye. The inventor of the QR code is warning us that we should probably do more to secure the QR code because it was initially invented to help robots make things in factories. And now we're using it for sharing passwords and stuff. And maybe we should think a little bit more carefully about that. It was an interesting yeah. piece from Nake Security. A few fun things in Propeller Beanie territory. But again, I'll leave them for the listeners' own discretion, which then gets us to palate cleansers. Unix at fifty: How the OS that powered, start smartphone, that powered smartphones started from failure. This is a hmm. fascinating story. So I vaguely knew about this. To me, this entire Ars Technica article, which is over three long pages, was one bullet point in a slide in my database, er, in my OS's course in second year computer science. <laughs> Unix was developed after the failure of Multics. That was the bullet point. And that was, frankly, all I knew about the origins of Unix. Now I know an awful lot more. And it was actually really fun reading the story um, because names kept on cropping up. I was like, oh, oh, I know you're going to be important. Uh, particularly Kernighan and Ritchie, because the canonical book for learning the C programming book is known universally as the K&R book, because it is by the two two guys who were influential in creating Unix and the C programming language, which came along with Unix, called... Kernigan and Richie So the KO book is named after these people and they show up as characters in the story and we get to put flesh on these <laughs> names I've always seen. You know, they were human beings with you know personalities and quirks and so on and so forth. So it was a really fun read. Um so they and you know, Unix went on to become BSD, went on to become uh, Next Step, went on to become Mac OS, went on to become iOS. This is the origins that's driving most of the world, and Linux is a clone of Unix, designed to be free of intellectual property problems, that came along when Bell Labs was split up. How fun. Yep, great story, so well worth a read. Um, the 99% Invisible podcast did an episode which they've called Wait, Wait, Tell Me, which is a fun name. <laughs> it is about the design of progress bars. Oh. Fascinating. <laughs> Believe it or not, a lot of effort goes into that. Because we humans, well, th- th- yeah. Wait, anyway, wait, tell yeah, me. <laughs> yeah, I won't spoil it. It's it's not a long podcast episode. They're never long, The 99% Invisibles. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. So link in show notes. And then the final one was recommended by John Gruber. And something myself and John Gruber share is a love of regular expressions or, or ease. There is a website called regexcrossword.com, which is a game for learning regular expressions based sort of kind oh. of on a crossword.
0: Oh, how fun. Yep. So I what you'd like have... to get better at it. So this yeah. this sounds awesome.
1: So it's basically a puzzle game where you have a regular expression written on each axis and you have intersecting lines of characters, and you need to find the character that goes into the empty space that is valid on every regular expression that intersects with that space.
0: Oh. Oh, so you don't learn to write them, but you would be better at being able to tell how they work. Precisely. Maybe. Yes, exactly. Okay. And then so, you just look them up.
1: Uh, yes, exactly. So it, it's a game to help you read regular expressions. It's a cool idea. Huh. And I believe you want to add in a Palo review. I'm
0: actually going to wait on that. I'm going to do a separate oh. blog post on it after all. So uh, I think Ooh. that actually winds us up.
1: Okay. Well, in that case, until next time, stay patched so you stay secure. Well,
0: that is going to wind us up for this week. I hope to chat with you during the Apple Live event on Tuesday. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, suggestions. And I know I have a dumb question waiting about security. I'm sorry. I know it's still out there, and I just haven't gotten around to uh, answering it yet. Anyway, you can send those to me at allison at podfeed.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, anything you want to do, anything fun, starts with podfeed.com. podfeed.com slash Patreon, podfeed.com slash Facebook, podvcom slash slack and if you want to join in the fun of the live show where do you go PodV.com slash live on sunday nights at 5 p.m pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic nocilla castaways miss you this week frank thanks for listening and stay subscribed